Welcome. You're listening to Convinced, a podcast about belief and religious experience. Fun fact. Here's a quote from the one and only psych study that I read about religious belief this summer. Quote, Regardless of whether God exists or not, religious beliefs do exist and can be experimentally studied as shown in this study. End quote. I love it when a study establishes that a thing can be studied. This is funny to me. So, welcome back. Religious beliefs exist. Great. Uh, In this episode, we're going to talk about the reasons that people give when they talk about their beliefs. So you're going to hear from a lot of interviewees this episode, and I would like to invite you to consider the following questions as you listen. What do their answers say about the God that they know? What are they trying to convince us of, and how are they doing it? Why do they use these particular examples and describe their stories in the ways that they do? How have they made sense of their strange experiences? How do they fit the pieces together into a fairly cohesive framework? And how are they moved forward in their conviction? What influences have been and continue to be in their lives that make particular connections and patterns more prominent to them? And of course, be thinking about our central question, how are these people reasoning about God and about their internal sense of conviction? I've put my participants under a lot of scrutiny, uh, so I just want to thank them again for being willing to be part of this project. It can be really eye-opening to hear other people's stories, and it is cool to see how people explain the reasoning behind their actions. I found that through doing this work over the summer, I've been able to take better notice of the different assumptions that people make according to the systems that they're working in, which is very fun. So anyways, now that we've had a chance to look at the ways our lenses, frameworks, and stories help us make sense of the world, I think it's time to take a closer look at the kinds of lenses my interviewees seem to be using, as indicated by the language they use and the stories that they tell. What are the ways of knowing about and reasoning about God that people use? And how do these lenses or frameworks serve as points of conviction or of certainty to justify religious belief? So, here we go. Number one, scripture. It is not surprising that lots of the ministers that I talked with made reference to the central text of Christianity, but a few of them used it almost as proof or as a support for a claim. There are a few different ways of justifying our beliefs or knowledge claims to ourselves, one of which is to give a line of reasons or claims that are ultimately based in a single foundation. For example, some Christians might think of the Bible as a foundation for their knowledge, and we can see this in my interviewees. In my sort of devotional life, like, you know, going to scripture and prayer, that's, um, you know, definitely a source of comfort and peace, um, guidance. You know, we can read scripture and we can read the Bible. And I mean, you know, I could make a decision for the rest of the afternoon today um, or have many options of things I could do, you know, after we meet. And they're probably all, they all could be good things. You know, whether it's a hospital visit or visiting someone in their home or making a call that really needs to be made, you know, um, giving a donation for some ministry, all kinds of things we could do. Um, but is there one that's, you know, absolutely the right one that needs to be done right now? Probably. Um, I think one of the challenges is that, you know, often we, 
we see, you know, in a lot of gray sometimes, trying to make sense of that. Um, God probably has more specifics in mind, but we're trying to figure that out. <laughs> it's not always easy. Um, yeah, so as far as, you know, scripture goes, is it, you know, if it's something that's, you know, sort of obvious in scripture, then to me that's, okay, well, that's pretty obvious and, you know, I can I can run with that. Um if it's one of those sort of grayer areas, then I think that's especially where, you know, prayer clicks in and, the you know, Lord, I need a, a sign of some kind. This minister uses scripture as a guide for how to act and how to hear from God. The Bible itself is treated as the foundation of knowledge about God, and this claim may be supported by and linked to other accepted ideas about its history and the stories we tell about it. Alternatively, biblical authority may trace back to an ultimate and divine source, that is, that it is God-inspired and therefore foundational. Or it could be that the reasons for biblical authority are circular, in a coherentist way of knowing. Scripture is believed to have authority because of the belief that it is inspired by God. But when we ask for the source of God's authority, some people would say that we know God has authority because of what the Bible says about God. And then if we ask, why should we trust the Bible? Well, we'd say, because it's from God. And then why does God have authority? Well, because the Bible says that he does, etc., etc. Some of my participants talked about experiencing God through the Bible, in which case the Bible would have meaning and authority because of its connection to God. With these beliefs in place, people get something out of reading biblical texts as an experience of God. The stories and the words take on a personal significance and are understood to be very meaningful. God directed me out of my own, like without me being involved in it whatsoever, to Isaiah 41 where it talks about, don't be dismayed, don't be discouraged. I will hold you up with my right hand and I will take care of you and I will strengthen you and I will help you. And I'm like, okay, you know. Those things stick out and looking back and even just taking those verses and reading them again and looking over them again and reminding myself of the promise that is there, that helps. And reading the Bible and realizing that these characters in the Bible who we talk about, who we think, you know, never doubted it or never had any um, bad days. And then we realize that they really did and that there were days that Abraham messed up and Moses messed up and David messed up and the disciples Peter messed up all the time and yet God was still with them and still worked through them so it's holding on to that part and some of the time it's I'm reading the Bible and something sticks out that I need that I needed to hear right at that moment you know that's not a coincidence from my perspective because how like, I just randomly opened up to this place and it just happens to say this one thing that I'm dealing with this at this exact moment. Like, there's just too much randomness in that for that to make sense to me. Okay, number two. Tradition slash church community. As in, like, a community that adheres to a particular tradition. So, when I asked about their decision to go into ministry, a few of my participants started to explain the logistical side of the process, particularly in reference to becoming a minister at a church. This demonstrated an acceptance of the rules set by the organization of the church. 
the adherence to rules can be subtle, as demonstrated by a few female ministers who grew up thinking that they would never be able to pursue a career in the church because it was not generally accepted in their respective traditions. These two women knew that they wanted to be involved in ministry from a young age, but didn't entertain the possibility of leadership until encountering other female leaders in church. In my childhood, I don't really... In my childhood, I have no recollection of women in ministry. Yeah. And uh, at one point, I it must have been at a church anniversary or something, that uh, uh, there was a woman guest speaker. And I thought, holy, holy moly, we could do that, you know. The tradition creates norms and boundaries for the people within it, or in other words, it offers a framework of understanding. And if the people value tradition and see no real reason to rebel against it, they will let it inform the way they think about themselves and about God. Throughout the interview process, I noticed that my participants would make reference to assumed beliefs in their particular denomination, including their typical use of the Bible. For instance, a trend that I noticed with my small pool of participants was that some ministers made more liberal assumptions in the way that they talked about the Bible, treating it more like a story or a myth embedded with truths, whereas others tended to talk about it with a more literal treatment of its events. For instance, one minister offered me the story of sin and redemption from the garden to the cross. My worldview from scripture is when it comes to humanity, starts off with a humanity that was made in the image of God, not in our physical appearance, but it says we were made in his image so we share his characteristics in a finite way. Adam and Eve, the first humans, um, Adam being representative of humanity as a whole, rejected God's goodness and tried to take over the authority, tried to live independent of God. And the Bible would say that that plunged humanity and the world into this darkness that we call sin, that has affected every person and everything since. And he goes on from there. Other participants said things like this. To anthropomorphize God, and that's always a bit dangerous, but we're uncomfortable doing that. Uh, the Bible does it, as long as we don't take it too literally. Again, that's a, an interesting story, and, and, and everything is stories, but uh, you know, uh, if we base our faith on, on scripture, it's really just a book of stories, so uh, out of which we draw applications to faith. There are certainly attempts within certain Christian denominations to make scripture and to make theology very clear. Like God's word on this is very clear. In some cases it is, but some, in many cases it's, it's, um, it leaves us with more questions than answers. And so where there is um, a lot of mystery uh, and, and many things of, of, of human existence and understanding of, of of the divine, there's lots of mystery there, and so that that begs for constant probing into understanding um, God and life, the interaction between the two. And life's messy; life is complicated, and so um, why would faith in Scripture and theology be be simple? It, it, it's intended to reflect human struggles with understanding 
mystery and, and, and trying to articulate um, what cannot be expressed. That's the fun of it <laughs> and the frustration. So we've got uh, one, scripture, two, tradition, and number three is church community, which is very much related to what we just talked about. So here I'm referring to the people themselves who may also perpetuate the tradition, but have their own personal power and authority. You know, humans. We're social creatures. We like to feel accepted, and we look to fellow humans for affirmation and to make sure that we're not crazy. Religious people also check in with each other. They share their thoughts and feelings about God, discuss theology or anything else, really, uh, just as you would in any other discipline. Yes, I think that's really important to to know and to, to have a team uh, approach the ministry, whether it's paid or volunteer or, you know, whatever. But uh, so I have friends that I can you know, turn to and say, hey, maybe it's for advice, maybe it's just for encouragement, maybe it's just just to hang out and sort of be normal. <laughs> um, but that's been really helpful to me to have a bit of a network. It's not a large network. I mean, I have lots of acquaintances, but, you know, in terms of that sort of like the closer ones and, and yeah, and we're all, often we can, you know, relate or in different sort of ministries, but I mean, it's the same kind of situations happen often. So, so that, that's been really helpful to me. One minister mentioned checking academic resources, and a few others mentioned reading theology or philosophy. These sources, though less personal, contribute to the sense of what is normal and okay. Many participants mentioned how their community and friendships have helped them to make decisions, to vent, and to feel supported along their journey and in their work. A few are particularly thankful for the encouragement that they continue to receive from people now, and they mention people as a source of affirmation in times of decision and as a support when they are struggling with their job. And I just need good people around to, like, speak into my life or kick me or (laughs) affirm something. Sometimes I just really need the affirmation, which I know is, like, a people-pleasing-passer tendency, but, like, I don't know. If you're not hearing good things from people, I also think there's a good chance that you're really off base. Others are also influential through their appreciation in response to services that are provided by the minister. We feel encouraged and affirmed in what we do when we learn from others that our work has made a difference in their lives. I also have what I call my blue file. And I started this when I was a student minister back in about 1987. It was a blue file folder. And into that I put uh, those few notes of appreciation that I had received. Uh, And then when you're feeling a little blue, you open up your blue file and you're reminded of what you've done for people. Mm -hmm. My blue file is now, well, it's not even a banker's box, it's two banker's boxes. Um, Because there have been many expressions of gratitude or appreciation and, and it's a reminder that what I'm doing is is a weighty responsibility and I, and I share the uh, the words of uh, live by the words of Martin Luther who, who um, apocryphally I don't know if it's actually Martin Luther's words or not uh, is said to have prayed um, Lord you've made me an instrument of, of your ministry do not leave me alone because if left to myself surely I will bring it all to ruin <laughs> in other words we, we carry a a huge burden and a great responsibility. Yeah. We don't carry it lightly, 
but we know we don't carry it alone. Um, I think the people that you serve, that's really the thing. But um, I enjoy the interaction with the people and the feeling that you're doing something meaningful for them. That's, that's what keeps me in it. Two participants in particular talked about the influence of having a group of friends as young adults who shared their interest in faith and in God. It's always been people who have helped me or guided me or directed me. Like there's been a number of individuals who helped me make big decisions or never telling me what to do as much as um, pointing in different directions. I also think um, growing up in a culture of faith and ministry makes a big difference. Uh, this is really, this is a little harder to get my head around, but, so my brother and I, he's a year and a half younger, I have several siblings, but my brother's a year and a half younger than me, and so we grew up just about the same, like, except for being, except for actual twins, like, we're pretty good in terms of, like, academic studies of how siblings are raised, but all of my friends, or at least my really good friends, were like very active in their faith so in high school we'd have like bible studies and prayer meetings and stuff and we'd go to youth group each other's youth groups for fun and whereas my brother his friends weren't they were more um interested in sports and like normal teenage things than mine were i think i think that's a big influence that sort of culture of friendship so that when I said like oh I think I want to be ordained all my friends were like oh okay mm. like that is a thing that normal people do for a living in this little culture of friends I had in high school whereas for my brother to say that for instance like his friends would have thought he was nuts also like my friends and I reinforced each other going to church going to youth group um, having Bible studies all the rest of it and my friend my brother's friends just didn't mm -hmm. so like I read the Bible all the way through in high school and I've never asked him but I doubt that he would have like and I think that makes a difference because then that leads me to even being around to say yes the, the people around us give us a sense of what is normal and accepted one participant talked about the role of odd people in his life Dan told me his story of getting involved in ministry by highlighting significant experiences that often involved interactions with people who taught or showed him something that he then added into his sense of faith or spirituality. For example. Um, yeah, odd people. When I did my internship uh, in theology, there was this guy called Hugh McNally, way out of the box that you know, thought women ought to be ordained long before they were ordained. It was okay to... Uh, have questions about the faith without thinking or going burning to hell and that kind of stuff. So he was important. The people he encountered who were on the edges of mainstream Christianity, if I can call it that, were meaningful to him because they inspired him. Despite their perhaps radical ideas or ways of being, he trusts the kind of people they are and he knows that he can learn a lot from them. I don't think I have ever felt like I was swimming in the same river as everyone else. Or if I were, I was certainly swimming upstream and hitting a lot of barriers. Yeah, so just sort of not fitting 
uh, and being challenged by that. And the, the not fitting sort of reaffirmed that it was okay to be on spiritually. And uh, yeah, that may sound strange to you, but I was, my faith was enlivened by that. And I just found my personal Christian experience so, uh, so much more of a, uh, an affirmation. So yeah, has that drawn me closer to God? I think so. I really think so because it was just kind of, I don't, these barriers that I assumed had been there were not because there are all these great, cool people who, yeah, well-educated, thoughtful people who were passionately in love with God. Having felt like a misfit himself in church circles, Dan is likely comforted by the odd people he has met because they can show him that he is not the odd man out and that it is not necessary to adhere to everything in the Christian tradition, whichever one you grew up in, in order to follow God. These encounters with different people allowed Dan to be constantly learning and reworking his framework of what is accepted and where the boundaries of Christianity lie. People are also influenced by the sense of community that is created by others. A few participants mentioned the safe space that church provided to them to grow and to figure out who they are. I ended up involved Actually, it was because of Amy Jones, um, Amy Pike now. Um, we became really good friends in school, and I started going to her church for youth group, and then drug my whole family there, and then my family fell apart, <laughs> and I decided to like take refuge in the church. Another participant described church as a place of comfort and as a home. On the topic of comfort, one aspect of belief that I've thought a lot about over the course of this project Um, It's just how comforting it can be. I noticed quite a few of my interviewees were encouraged by the sense of belonging or the feeling of being at home that they had in church or because of church. Taking on the beliefs of the church is comforting because it's associated with the deep sense of community and comfort that they have experienced. The opposite is just as true. Those who have left church or decided to believe differently, (laughs) heretics, uh, often experience a deep sense of loss when they are excluded from the community of faith. It's no longer a safe place for them, no longer comforting, because they have started their own paradigm-shifting journey all alone. As we look at the reasons that people give, we cannot forget about the ways they may reason about their emotions in connection to their past experience with other Christians and their home churches. It is interesting to note at this point that most, if not all, of my participants were exposed to church at a very young age. The early and consistent exposure to the church made it familiar to them, and they likely find comfort with that familiarity. To enter into ministry then, they didn't have to adjust to an unfamiliar working environment in the way that most other jobs or vocations would. First, really helped shape a lot of things for me, including like um, title impact, having to get that like mentor person that's supposed to whatever that never actually works out. Mm -hmm. Mine ended up being my mentor for years and years. I lived in their basement after my dad passed away. They were my family. dad of the family walking down the aisle like (laughs) yeah it was it's just solid like it shouldn't have it could have worked out that way at white pine but i didn't ever remember people wanting to invest in me that way at that point at least 
And lastly, many of the participants talked fondly about the people in their childhood churches who invested in them and helped them to follow their sense of calling as they grew. Tara talks briefly about having a desire to give kids the same kind of experience of safety that she had been given in the church. It took a couple of years, but I finally accepted Jesus at like 16, and it was like in that moment that I was like set on ministry. I don't know if it's just because of that feeling of security that I had when I was a teenager and the world was falling apart that I just really wanted to share that with others or what, but that's pretty much where things came from. The role that other people have played in the lives of my participants is significant and diverse. So, just to recap, so far I've looked at three main factors that influence the lenses or frameworks of my participants in their religious decision-making. These are, once again, say it with me, scripture, tradition, and community. For this last factor, I've tried to highlight the ways that community has offered personal support, a sense of what is normal, or odd but okay, and a reason to serve. There are two more factors that I want to talk about, but before that... It's time for a moment with William James. Just to change up the gears a little bit, let's have another look at what James says in the varieties of religious experience. He approaches the topic of religious experience empirically and influenced by his psychological commitments as he studies experiences as described from personal testimonies. He notes that trendsetters or authoritative figures in religions have often had strange experiences that will even add to their authority in the religious system that they're participating in, along with symptoms of nervous instability, abnormal psychical visitation, and exalted emotional sensibility. A good example is George Fox, the founder of the Quaker tradition. James says we could call him a psychopath. However, within a particular system of thought, his unsound mind lent itself to the perception of his being a spiritual authority. Is there a way that we could hold both his pathologies and his spiritual experiences without one discounting the other? Quote, It is true that we instinctively recoil from seeing an object to which our emotions and affections are committed, handled by the intellect as any other object is handled. End quote. In other words, it is difficult to look at objects that hold a deeper significance to us from a framework that takes away its meaning. People who are part of a religious community will find it difficult to talk about religious experience or of God from an unsympathetic point of view. I think this is because doing so forces us to put foundational rules into question. It asks us to take off our comfortable, familiar lens and to look through a different framework that offers different connections before we know if we can trust it. James also points out that we are in the habit of looking for the roots or original causes of events, and that we use the perceived cause as a reason for validity or value of an event. For example, we could explain George Fox's experiences away by attributing the event to his pathologies, and in doing so, we assume to discount the experience. This method is part of a particular game in which causes dictate value or validity. If the experience is produced by a mental instability, 
Many people would say that the experience is therefore not real or not spiritually significant. There are a lot of assumptions going on here, but in the interest of time, I will just say that one assumption is the claim of explanation, that correlation implies causation, as they say. So just because two factors often show up together, it does not mean that one necessarily causes the other. All we can really do is observe the patterns of connection in an attempt to describe rather than to explain. In the words of James, quote, We are surely all familiar in a general way with this method of discrediting states of mind for which we have an antipathy. We all use it to some degree in criticizing persons whose states of mind we regard as overstrained. But when other people criticize our own more exalted soul flights by calling them nothing but expressions of our organic disposition, we feel outraged and hurt. For we know that whatever be our organism's particularities, our mental states have their substantive value as revelations of the living truth. End quote. We assume that particular states of mind cannot lead to truth because, again, we easily assume that the cause or source of the insight or event discounts the thing being learned or the experience. But it is somewhat arbitrary to choose particular states of mind that lead to quote-unquote truth and to discount others as invalid, especially when experiences can have deep significance to people no matter what state of mind they're in. Even though it is difficult, it is important to recognize that there is a distinction between the value of a claim, as true or not, and its source. An experience can have value and truth independently of and despite other ways of describing where it comes from. This particular struggle is very relevant in a discussion about religious experience because it doesn't fit well with the typical ways of understanding the world that use scientific frameworks of reasons and causes. In religious experience, the significance of the event does not depend on the string of causes that create the event. Scientific method, in contrast, finds significance in what is reproducible through a recreation of steps or causal factors. So, James is left with this question, how can we judge and understand religious experiences? Without the origin as a criterion for truth or validity, what else is there? We cannot measure experiences in the way that other scientific study is done, and even if we could, I'm not sure that it would produce anything too valuable. Religious experiences are personal, emotional, and significant in a framework or game independent of those used in the sciences. So, let's return and have a look at the last few ways of knowing and reasoning that were demonstrated by my participants. And remember, we're looking at the ways of knowing about and reasoning about God that they use, and how these lenses or frameworks serve as points of conviction or certainty to justify religious belief. So, number four, having an inner sense or hearing the voice of God. <laughs> I don't remember ever hearing an audible. Like I said, it, people don't, people who don't understand the spiritual aspect of things, they think you're crazy and um, think you're nuts. But Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. 
and they know when I'm talking to them. And I believe our conscience is a part of God's voice. Like, everyone has a conscience. Everyone has something that says, no, you shouldn't do that. You know, I don't think that's our voice saying it, because typically our voice is saying the opposite. Um, I believe that's God's given voice, and sometimes we either try to hide it, or we don't listen to it. It just kind of, you know how someone would have like a eureka moment, or that type of thought. It's that type of sense, but you know it didn't come from you. You know it didn't come from your own thinking, because you could never think of anything like that on your own. Basically, if God is speaking to you, how do you know it's his voice and not somebody else's voice? And there are certain checks and things you can run that by, just like anybody else's voice. Like, okay, that sounds like so-and-so, but I know so-and-so would never say that, so it can't be that, right? Um, and so there are cer certain things like that um, that I've had in place, um, but over time it's be become easier to tell if it's his voice or not. These ministers are systematic in the way that they try to understand God speaking to them, despite how crazy it might seem to be able to hear God's voice. There are measures that they use, such as biblical knowledge, previous experience with God, gut feelings, a feeling of otherness but fitting, or inner peace, and these act as reasons to signal whether the experience is actually from God. These indicators have a place in the various frameworks of my participants, influencing what fits and the patterns they see, and creating a standard against which they can measure their experience. I have really good gut reactions to things normally. If I'm not at peace with something, or like, even if I just don't feel one way or the other about something, I'm like, mm. <laughs> And like, 96% of the time I'm right. <laughs> I'll give myself a bit of an error. <laughs> yeah. Because it does happen. Um, but the majority of the time, like, my gut reactions just... I don't know. It's like my superpower from Jesus. <laughs> yeah. It's something that I... Like, it hasn't always been a thing. Right. Like, it's been something I've honed. And, like, almost like a spiritual discipline. Like, just, like... <laughs> right. <laughs> And, like, as I've grown and gotten closer to Jesus, too, I feel like it gets more there. Mm -hmm. Or easier to, to, to yeah. decide or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ah, another quick uh, moment with William James. <laughs> so, there's a connection here to James yet again. Um, I've said that frameworks that people use can also function as a standard for what is typical and to be expected of different phenomena. Some things fit into the recognized pattern, but what happens to the parts that are incompatible? Well, James says that we ignore pieces that don't fit into the puzzles that we're working in. So in other words, we ignore the parts of the chaos that don't work in our framework. For instance, hypnotism used to be dismissed by science generally because it didn't make sense with the ways that we understood humans to be. But now, I learned in a psychology course a few years ago that there are individual factors that make certain people more susceptible to hypnotism and that they've been able to detect trends in the kinds of things that can be cured through hypnosis, which still sounds crazy to me. So, this is just to say that the way you choose to see something affects how you see it. 
I know that that sounds like an obvious statement, but what I mean is that if you understand God as a solution to a philosophical, metaphysical problem, then that's very different from the personal relationship God that many Christians tend to emphasize nowadays, at least in my experience. If all you're looking for is blue, then you don't really see other colors, and anything that looks kind of blue will be grouped into that category. As we partake in a particular game, we are set up to look for pieces that are meaningful to that game and that fit within its rules, because that's the way we've decided to make sense of things. Okay, number five, last but not least, and connected to everything I've already talked about, the God that the interviewees profess to know is an influential factor in the way that they reason about God and about their experiences and about their sense of conviction. The way that my participants know God and the things they know about God are influential in how they perceive and experience God. This point has likely been evident thus far because I'm basically saying that people have a framework of God that they then use and tweak in their experiences. It is influenced by the various factors I've already discussed, and it is influential in reasoning about the factors that I've already discussed. So everything is intertwined and a mess, basically. (laughs) I noticed a clear thread in some interviews of participants' understanding of God informing, or at least connected to, the way they think about theology or ethics. A simple example is that a participant would talk about God as loving all people and talk about a desire in themselves to serve and love people. The way they understand God is connected with how they think they ought to act in the world and in response to what they would call experiences of God. I see God in the struggle of of persons trying to become reconciled. I see God in those moments when someone gives of themselves to another, um, if it's a friend, fine, if it's a family member, so be it. But when someone gives of their life and gives of their time, to a stranger, you know, um, um, that to me are for me experiences of God, because that's the God that, that is revealed in scriptures is the is the God who enters into the world, um, walks with, teaches, suffers alongside, um, is empathetic towards, tries to bridge those boundaries between those who are included and excluded. That's Christ within the Gospels, and so. Um, I experience God through, again, through, through the other. So let's have a look at one last story to illustrate what I've been talking about. Cheryl went back to school to work in a hospice or as a social worker. In the final year of her program, she had an experience that she says could have had no possible source other than God. And in that final year um, is when started to get the nudge to come to Nova Scotia. We have no family here, nothing. Um, so when God started sticking this in my head, and pretty heavily in my head, to the point where I had to say, okay, God, I need you to shut it off because I have to get these papers done. And and it was. It was like a switch. He would shut it off, and I'd get the paper done, and it would be right back at me again. And so finally I went to my husband, and I said, I don't know what this is. I don't know what this means, if it's we're supposed to be supporting somebody that's in Nova Scotia, or what. And my husband doesn't like change. And the first thing he said to me was, well, do you think he wants us to move there? And I almost had a heart attack. 
<laughs> and I went, well, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe that's not what it is. Um, but as you can tell through the process, we landed here. Um, and he, he led us through that. Among many of what you might call strange events, hearing the words Nova Scotia was clearly an experience of God for Cheryl and a piece in her reasoning for moving to the Maritimes. I knew, yeah, yeah I knew that that's where it was coming from. Yeah. <laughs> because, like as I said, we had no connection down here. None. So to have that, that urgency and that clear of a message, to me, there was no other source possible. Absolutely no other source. And so it was then our job to wrestle out what that meant. And I love the way he does that because if we don't wrestle things out, we don't get the connection, we don't get the depth of relationship that we need in order to act on what it is he's calling us to. But there has to be that gap between him explaining and I don't think vague is the right word but in a brief way maybe is a better way to put it that he wants us to pursue something and then for us to wrestle out with him what that is and when we invest in that relationship and figuring out what it is that he's wanting from us that's when we grow and that's when that's when we get the benefit right because there's incredible benefit in relationship with him she talked about how taking this humble posture towards god's authority was influential in their decision making to follow god's leading to nova scotia because we needed to see that god had all the little details figured out for us right to understand to understand that he, he had it, right? But in as much as coming to that understanding of he had it, we still had to relinquish and say, okay, no matter where it is, in that province, we will go. Mm-hmm. And that's what he was looking for. He was looking for us to be humble and obedient. And if we don't come to that place where we can do that, we're not going to get there. She explains that having gone through the experience of figuring out that God wanted them to move to Nova Scotia allowed them to cultivate the trust and obedience in God that has helped them get through difficult times. A lot of her life and decision-making hinges on her relationship with God. If we had come here without coming to that place of humility and obedience, then the challenge of being here would have been that much greater. This is now home. It definitely feels like home for all of us, but to leave siblings and grandmothers and our church family of 12 years to an unknown would be on our own strength impossible, absolutely impossible. But with God placing us in that, in that position of being humbly obedient keeps us in the right place when things are hard. 
because we can quickly and not as quickly as we should sometimes but get back to him and say no we know you've got it we know that you've got us here for a reason and so it makes those hard times easier Cheryl alludes to her conviction as being grounded in her understanding of and relationship with God, both of which have been reinforced by her experiences. So I have the ability to decline it, but because of my relationship with him, from my perspective, I don't have the choice. This is what he's called me to do. And if I truly love him, I'm going to obey him. So I don't have a choice to step away until he tells me. And do I have it all together every day? Absolutely not, right? But that's the piece of a relationship, is that it ebbs and flows. But when it comes down to the grid of it, it's, no, I choose. I choose this because you chose me. It's not duty at all. It is it's bigger than that. Duty is something is something that you have to do without heart. This is, I know you. I know the depth of the love that you have for me. And I know the depth of the love that you have for every other person here. So if I truly love him, I'm going to act. So it's not duty, it's love. These last two factors, or aspects of our lenses, can be a little more mystical or mysterious, and are perhaps more difficult to relate with if you have not experienced hearing God's voice or experiencing God in ways similar to what has been described. But these strange experiences are often the stories that people tell as they remember their sense of conviction and the reasons why they decided to act in a particular way. And although the more mystical experiences may seem to be more convincing to the individual, I talked about these two factors being, you know, sensing God and having a personal knowledge of God. I talked about these two last because I think it's important to recognize that the mystical is not all that there is. My participants experienced God through scripture, through tradition, and through community, And then some did experience God more personally or through hearing a voice. And all of these factors together and over time create and adjust the framework for understanding experiences. Part of this process involves things like the paradigm shift of belief and partaking in different games. As people continue to try to articulate what is inarticulatable. And yes, that, I don't know if that's a word. (laughs) Um, But really, what it all boils down to is that there is no one thing that could really convince any of my participants to follow a call from God. It's through the accumulation of experiences and the factors I discussed in this episode, and others that I didn't, that these people have been able to act with a dependence on a divine other. The reasons they give and their senses of conviction are very personal, woven into the web of their belief Um, And it's another piece in the puzzle that they play with. So where does that leave us? Well, if you're like me, then you may have been hoping that I would have found the one definitive answer that would be convincing enough for all of us to know with certainty when God speaks to us. But unfortunately, I can't show you a light on the road to Damascus, 
even though I've described such experiences with the help of my participants. Uh, that's a Bible reference. Uh, go read Acts chapter 9 if you don't get it. So all of this is it's just some more pieces of the puzzle offered through description and lots of stories and what stands out to me or to you and the reasons that we'll each agree with will be different according to our respective lenses and frameworks. But hopefully, listening to these few episodes has been helpful to begin to understand the complexities of the ways that people know things and are convinced of their knowledge. My original conclusion to this series was to say that basically everything is a complicated mess. And, you know, I still stand by that. But I think that's part of the beauty of it all. Because if everything was neatly ordered, well, where's the fun in that? So what I've done here is I've tried to offer a tool for understanding our chaos. The tool being that we use lenses, a type of tool, for understanding chaos. And depending on the lenses that we use, different patterns will show up to us, and other unfitting information will likely be ignored. Religious lenses are not necessarily good or bad in and of themselves, but they are useful for addressing particular kinds of needs. As I said at the beginning, our pal William James concludes that religion is useful for people to be able to cope with life. As we end this off, let's hear a few last words from my participants. What keeps you in ministry in your daily life? Or how would you describe what sustains you during challenging times? Yeah, I think for me, in the end, that profound uh, religious experience, and, and depending on your perspective, that may sound like absolute garbage. All I can say is that some of I would be among the I would be among some of the most critical Christians when it came to this sort of thing, uh, and it happened to me. And, so, and in a sense that um, there's the call to uh, pastoral ministry, and then there is just the then there is this overriding sense of yes, I have this particular call to be involved as a leader in the Church of Christ. And that has never dissipated. Obviously, what's happened in my past is a, is a big piece. Looking at the evidence and coming back to the evidence and saying, you know what, like, I look around at the world around me and I see, I see what God says and I see what the world says and what God says seems to make a, lot, a whole lot more sense and not create as much chaos. Probably that I just really like it. Mm -hmm. Like, I like talking about God. I like teaching people. Um, I like Sunday mornings, and they are tiring for me. But I, there's nothing else I'd rather do. Like, mm -hmm. so I get a, a tremendous sense of personal fulfillment from this job. And and there's also like in a very real sense, my own faith keeps me in it. Um, so the sense of call is still strong. So even on in bad times, I'm still called to do this work. I mean, is Jesus the appropriate answer for that? Uh, but how? Right. He constantly reminds me again that I have you here for a purpose and for a reason. And even on days when I'm like, I have no idea what you are doing or why this is happening. Well, what, what keeps us going is, uh, first of all, knowing that we've been, or I've been called to this. 
this is not, it is in, in, in essence a, a second career for self. However, um, uh, I wouldn't be doing this if I wasn't called. We don't financially, so I'm not doing this because I need a job, because, because I don't. It's, we are called to this and it's confirmed, you know, day after day. The answer to both questions I would say is joy. Joy is a state of being. Joy is a way you live your life based on your experience of life. Where happiness is fleeting, it can come and go. It's not something you can choose to be. And I can be absolutely miserable and still have joy in my life. In fact, I have been absolutely miserable and still had joy because my joy rests in my experience of God. So when I hit these tough times, I lean on that. I think for me, a worshiping community, uh, uh, again, it's the people, but, but the people in that, uh, in that holy, mysterious presence, uh, and the joy and the hope that it can bring, even in very difficult times. I think those practices are, are larger, fuller, more developed forms of carrying a rosary around in my pocket. They're reminders <laughs> of who I am and who God is and what God means to me. Honestly, just being able to watch my leadership team, like watching those kids grow as humans and as Christians and like seeing God at work in their lives, like it's been beautiful, just utterly beautiful. What keeps me here is the community of people and the sense of purpose and meaning that I've found in community. For me, it would it would very much be that sense that uh, God is with us. I think I've already answered the question in terms of what sort of keeps me in ministry, and that is the relationships I have with the people here and in the community. Um, that curiosity still is there. You may be surprised I didn't say faith gets me through difficult times. Um, <laughs> I think it's often the faith of the community that gets me through. Um, there are times in, in when we're challenged um, that um, sometimes it's not our own faith, my personal faith that sustains me, but it's the faith of others. I just remember a colleague saying uh, after, at the end of an email, keep the faith. Although if it gets heavy, set it down for a bit. <laughs> um, within spirituality, uh, religion, there's a sense of so much emphasis on the, on the personal, you know, my personal faith, my personal experience, my personal understanding. And that's a heavy burden to bear, that my faith relies solely upon my own willpower. The faith is held by the community. And so I hold, I, I hold a lot of hope that when I find faith heavy, that I need to set it down, or I'm going through moments of crisis and difficulty, is that the faith, the community of faith, continues to hold it for me. And so yeah, it's what gets me through difficult or challenging times is, is I hold the hope that the community faith holds, holds the faith when I have to let it down. I want to say thanks again to all of my participants. It was so much fun for me to do the interviews for this project because it gave me a reason to be able to ask personal questions to, for the most part, strangers, and to be opened up into their world of reasoning. Over the course of this project, I've also learned a lot about myself and my own reasoning about faith, which was fun. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I'd also like to thank everyone who talked with me about this project, allowing me to vent and to process. You are all invaluable. And of course, thank you for listening. Feel free to reach out to me if you want to continue in this conversation. And just so you know, I have show notes full of resources that I read, and I also have transcripts of this program available. Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this little podcast series. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.